is the Big Church Podcast. Guys, I'm so honored to be able to speak to you tonight and especially to speak on something that I feel really called to speak on. So it's just really cool that, you know, Pastor Mindy asked um, and I was like, yes, I'll do it. (laughs) But then I didn't think about, you know, I had to prepare an entire sermon. So um, I really believe that God is going to do some amazing things tonight if we just, you know, are intentional and we lean in. Um, So... Also, I'm definitely going to go ahead and get started. Um, I do have a lot of Bible for you. Hopefully, that's okay. Um, But I don't want to mess around, so let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you so much um, for refuge. We thank you so much for every single person that has walked through these doors, God. I may not know their story. I may not know their heart, God, but you do, and you meet them where they are, and you soften their hearts to what they need to hear. God, please be with me, Um, and just let your words speak through me, God. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all. Well, the title of my message is called The Battle for Your Mind. Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, do you want peace? All right, now turn to your other neighbor, a.k.a. your second choice, and say, well, you need a battle strategy. Dope. All right, so I have four points for you tonight. And I definitely just kind of want to go in and talk about a time when I was a freshman in college. Um, Are any of you guys freshmen? Like three people. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. So yeah, I was a freshman in college and I was actually leading worship for the first time um, at our youth ministry at church. And it was a hot mess. Um, I was not prepared. I felt like crap. I was really anxious at the time and I could not get it together. I was kind of like doing this, this walk. I was like pacing back and forth with these negative thoughts just running through my mind because the enemy did not want me to lead worship that night. So I was like having this full on come apart in front of one of my really, really good friends who was one of my mentors at the time. And she was also leading worship with me on stage that night. And also the entire leadership staff saw this. So wonderful. So I was like pacing back and forth and I was like in my head, I could hear like this, these thoughts just like, Ashley, like, who do you think you are to lead all these people? Or like, Ashley, you're going to mess up. Obviously, Ashley, you look like crap. And it was just all of these thoughts. And I remember I just could not for the life of me get it together. I couldn't. So Courtney, who was my friend that I was leading with, she noticed this, obviously, and she took me out to the back, and I'll never forget this, because she grabbed onto my shoulders, she grabbed onto my shoulders, she looked me dead in the eye, and she said, Ashley, what makes you think that they're looking at you? What makes you think that they're looking at you? Side note, um, if you don't have a friend like this, um, I would suggest that you really evaluate who you're let speaking into your life. Because you need a friend. You need a friend who is going to love you where you are, but they're not afraid to ask you the hard questions. They're not afraid to hold you accountable. You need a friend like that. Um, So that kind of does lead me into my first point. And my first point is your pride is at the center of your anxiety. And you guys know that Bible verse. It's like cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How many? Come on. All right, probably the most Googled Bible verse of all time. Um, Also, I would honestly say every Christian's phone background at some time. I know it was mine. So, but 
Just to let you guys know, it's not a standalone verse. There is an entire passage that goes along with it, and I'm going to read it for you tonight. Um, it's 1 Peter 5, um, 6 through 10, um, and it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the entire world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, first of all, um, if you're using this verse as like the cure-all to anxiety, I am so sorry to tell you this. Um, it, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. This is actually not a command. This is not a command. Casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you is not something that he's asking you to do. It's a byproduct of the command that he's already told you, which is in the first verse. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because you can't cast your anxieties and keep your pride. You can't. You cannot cast your anxieties and keep your pride. You have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So I do have a question for you, and I really want you to think about this. Does the hand of God reign over every single part of your life? Does it reign over your family? Does it reign over your friends, your relationships, your finances, your job? Does it reign over who you are when no one's looking? I'm asking you this question because if Jesus is not the Lord of all, he's not the Lord at all. So I'm going to ask you again and really let it sink in. Does the hand of God reign over every part of your life? You see, pride is right in the middle of your anxiety. And some of you, I might have stepped on some toes, um, but some of you are probably kind of not, because I didn't understand this either, because when we think of pride, we think of like boasting in oneself. So like kind of like the mindset of like, I'm above it all, you know? But there's another side of pride that I think is not talked about enough, and it's called like a false sense of pride. So this is kind of like the mindset of, you know, oh, my mess is just too big for you, or... You know, I don't deserve to be helped. And I think that sometimes we really need to pay attention to like, if this is the kind of pride that we struggle with, because some of us, when we say, you struggle with pride, we get offended. Um, but there's another side of pride that's just as dangerous because it's basically you saying, like if you struggle with false, like a false sense of pride, saying that your mess is just too big, then you're basically saying, hey God, thanks for everything, but the cross does not apply to me. You're basically saying, hey, thank you so much, but your grace doesn't extend to me. So we know that, our, that God promises to be our comforter and our protector, but when we deny the credibility of God's word, it actually sets limits to our obedience in Christ. So I kind of want to just talk about, you know, me being a college student, but this is basically for anyone. Um, so let's say you're on a college campus, and I can speak into this because this was me to a T, okay? Freshman, sophomore year, this was me. I would, be, I would walk on my college campus and be like, God, use me. God, make me a catalyst for change. God, 
I want to see a revival. <laughs> and then you would walk and you would like see someone sitting by themselves and you, feel, and you would feel God like prompt you, like go say hi. Are you talking to me? Are you, I'm sorry, one more time? You're t- okay, you're talking to me. Um, I just don't think that that would be a good idea. Um, what if they think that I like, was weird? What if I came off too strong? What if I fail? What if they don't like me? Are you getting my point? It's all about me. It's all about me. So you holding on to your anxiety allows that very anxiety to put a limit on your obedience to Christ. You holding on to your anxiety is allowing that very anxiety to put a limit on your obedience to Christ. So what can we do? We need to follow the command. Like I said before, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you is the result to the command to humble yourself. And you know what? Notice how it says to humble yourself. It actually does not tell you, like, let God humble you. Trust me, I promise you, unless you enjoy learning the hard way, you don't want to be in a position where God has to step in and humble you. He wants you to do it yourself. He wants you to do it yourself. My second point is thoughts determine beliefs. Beliefs determine actions. So I want to tell you something right now, and I think that maybe we can take a breath out and have some relief, but you're actually not responsible for the thoughts that come into your head. Because if, if, I, if I was responsible, I would be questioning, like, am I even saved? Like, you're not responsible. There are thousands of them a day. You're not responsible because the world, obviously, throwing suggestions left and right. Satan is doing everything to knock you off your course. You're not responsible for that. But what you are responsible for is taking your thoughts captive. You have to take your thoughts captive. That's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians, to take every single thought captive because the battle for sin will always start in the mind. The battle for sin will always start in the mind. And when it says to like make, take captive, it means to make it submit. So you have to make every thought obedient to Christ. And the Bible even tells us that you cannot be trusted to tell yourself the truth. That's why you have to question your thoughts. And you have to tell others to not believe everything that they think. Just because you have a thought doesn't make it correct. And you know, this is the reason I think why we have so many fallen Christians, Christian leaders even, because the Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. And if he can get you to believe a lie, he can definitely get you to sin. I have a really strenuous relationship with my stepdad. Um, I remember one time when I was 14 years old, I was sitting at the table, we had just finished dinner, and my mom was kind of like getting everything put to the, in the sink, you know, cleaning. Um, but I was like texting on my phone probably. I remember I had this like LG slide. It was, sil- it was silver and chrome. That phone was bomb, okay? All right, but I remember this and I remember my stepdad, he just like, he wasn't very kind with his words. He never was very affectionate. He never threw out the words, I love you. And something in him just kind of snapped. And he just became very, very angry. And I remember hearing words from him that night, like worthless, like good for nothing, like basically a waste of space. And y'all, I was 14 years old 
when these words are spoken over me. So I remember going to my room that night and actually questioning my self-worth. I remember thinking, oh, he's right. I think I'm worthless. And you know, this thought, it changed my belief about myself. So because I had this thought that I was worthless, I started to believe that I was worthless. And because this thought was so ingrained in my beliefs, I started to then act out of a place of worthlessness. Do you see what I'm saying? Your thoughts determine your beliefs, and then your beliefs determine your actions. All of this because I believed a lie that was spoken over me, a lie that I chose to believe instead of believing what I knew that God had said about me. And if I'm not believing what God says about me, then I'm believing what the enemy is feeding me. And I'm sorry to be blunt, but that is sin. That is sin. Because you're negating what Jesus died for. And you really have to think about that. But like, how can we fix this cycle? How can we fix it? John 8, 32 It says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So let's do an example and we'll use the one from before. So let's say I think I'm worthless. First, take it captive because that's a thought and you have to be like, where does this come from? Is this of God or is this of the devil? That's what it means to take, you got it, yeah. Um, So it's a lie, obviously. So we need to locate the truth. So what's the truth? Well, it tells us in Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the NLT translation, it actually says masterpiece, which I like better, because to be a masterpiece, you have to create it with your hands. So if I was worthless, how can anything be worthless if, if it was sculpted in God's hands? Take it a step further. If I was worthless, if you were worthless, why did Jesus go through all that trouble to die on the cross? And if this is the truth, then we have to replace the lie. Did you know you have every authority to do so? Did you know that God, every single word that God spoke over Jesus, every right God gave to Jesus, every authority God gave to Jesus, he gave to you? The only difference is, is that Jesus believed him. So if the enemy is feeding you lies that you're worthless and reminding you constantly of the past, you have every right and every authority to turn around and remind him of the one who holds your future. Replace the lie with the truth and the truth will set you free. And when you do that, you have no other option than to be pulled into a perspective change. You have no other option. And my third point is your pain will be your prison or your platform. And I want to read from scripture. I want to read from Mark 5, 25 through 34. And it says, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under physicians. And she had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in a crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, 
immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, I love this because his disciples are like so sassy and you can just kind of read it. And it, he, it, it's funny. Okay. And the disciples said to him, you see this crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And then he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Y'all, this is crazy. This is crazy. And there are definitely some things that I want to point out. But first, notice in scripture how it does not give her a name. It doesn't give her a name. She's actually known as the woman with the issue of blood. So her condition became her identity. And the next is that this condition actually left her unable to have a connection with anyone. Allow, it never allowed a relationship with anyone, neither family nor friends. She was cut off. She was isolated from society with no other option but to be alone. And she spent, it said she spent everything she had trying to fix this condition with doctors and physicians, literally everything, and nothing worked. So she lost her identity. She lost all relationships, all security and resources. And I'm sure the enemy was trying to convince this woman that there was no one else struggling like she was, that no one else could relate. That's what the enemy does. Like he wants you to make, your feel, make you feel like you're the only one going through your situation. That's what he wants. I want you to picture this woman. Now this woman was just a part of the crowd. You couldn't pick her out. She blended in. You could not pick her out. But this woman was dying on the inside. Can any of you relate to that? Have any of you guys sat in those chairs that you're sitting in now and from the outside looking in, you're prospering, okay? Your Instagram likes are up in the thousands. Don't even get me started on the aesthetic, top notch, okay? You're surrounded by people all the time, but you're dying on the inside. You're feeling like you have to hide this anxiety, this depression, this addiction, anger, pride, whatever it is your pain comes from, you feel like you have to hide it feeling like you're alone and bleeding out, but you're not alone. And just like this woman, one touch from Jesus can change the game for you. You may struggle with, with pride. You may struggle with anger, with addiction, with anxiety, with depression, but one touch from Jesus can change the game. You know, even to further her condition, it tells us in Leviticus 15, don't worry, I'm not going to actually read from it, for time's sake and your own, so you're welcome. But it basically tells us that if this issue with blood was happening with any, with any woman, that she was basically considered ceremoniously unclean. And what that means is that if she were to touch anyone else, they would become unclean as well. So that probably more than likely meant that she was not allowed in any house of worship. So this woman was isolated because of her condition. She felt totally alone, cut off from society, from friends, from family, from everything. She lost resources and security. Anything that she touched became unclean as well. Y'all, this is a prison. She was living in a prison in her own mind. 
in this passage, you can, you can feel her desperation. You can feel her desperation that something needed to change for her because like it said, she tried everything, everything except for Jesus. So she follows the crowd that's following Jesus. And listen, when you're following Jesus, it puts you in a position for a miracle. When you're following Jesus, it puts you in position for a miracle. For the first time in 12 years, this woman took her eyes off of her own struggle, off of her own prison, and put them onto Jesus. She took her eyes off of her own situation and put them on to Jesus. Something supernatural happens when you take your eyes off of yourself and you turn them to the one who can help fix your situation. So this woman reached out and touched his robe. Y'all, she didn't even touch him. She touched the stitchings in his robe. And she said if she were to touch that, she knew she would be healed. And she was. And Jesus turned around because he knew that power had gone out from him. And then he said the most audacious thing. She probably never even experienced this. He said, go in peace. And she did. This woman had the choice to let Jesus pass her by and stay in her prison, but she didn't. She followed Jesus and Jesus healed her in front of an entire crowd. Everyone in that crowd saw a life transformation. Everyone in that crowd saw a miracle and she became a part of Jesus's ministry. That's a platform. So I really wanna challenge you. And this might be hard because you're gonna have to really evaluate this. Are you staying in your prison because you've been in it for so long, it's all you know, and you're comfortable with it? Stop settling for comfortability in your prison because I assure you, you weren't called to a life of complacency. You weren't called to a life of comfortability. That's not your life. That's not the life. That's not the purpose that Jesus has set out for you. My struggle with anxiety, y'all, I was in that prison for 12 years. I was 10 years old when I first experienced anxiety and depression. 10 years old. It was about two years after experiencing, you know, continually sexual abuse from a friend of the family. I didn't tell a soul until I was 22 years old because I felt like I was the only one. I felt like I would have been a burden. And because of this, I created my own prison, allowing Satan to distort and twist every single thought of myself and every thought of God. And the crazy thing is, is that I knew Jesus so well, I thought at that age, but I, the church was my safe place. I loved Jesus. I wanted nothing more than to know Jesus. But the enemy used or caused a war in my head. So I was always at odds with what to believe and who to believe. I remember vividly daily having panic attacks on the floor in the fetal position, feeling like I was dying, feeling like I was alone. And you know what? Someone walked into my life at the proper time when I was 22 years old, and she's still one of my best friends to this day. I remember finally feeling like I had to tell someone because like in scripture, she, I had tried everything else. 
My health was deteriorating because of this. My friends and my friend relationships, my family relationships, they were all just crap because I was never the real me. So I knew that I was at a point to tell someone and I told this woman and then when I started, when I stopped talking about my story, she looked at me and then she told me a very similar story about her battle with anxiety. You see, the Lord will do that. He'll put people in your path that struggled just like you did. So I told her, and in that moment, I truly believed and I got rid of the lie that I was alone. That set me free, just her telling. And I truly believe with everything in me that Jesus worked through her because he knew that I needed to visibly see that I was not isolated. Your pain does not have to be your prison. It can be that one thing that's a catalyst to bringing someone closer to God. If you allow your, plat like your pain to be your platform, it'll transform your mindset to something that we can never overcome to an opportunity to be used like never before. And my fourth point is... A lot of people struggle with anxiety. A lot of people that do that, that struggle with anxiety, they don't ever tell anyone. Because the enemy's goal is isolation. Because he's scared of a united people. He's scared of a united church. Many people in the Bible, anxiety is not a new trick, y'all. Many people in the Bible struggled with anxiety. Adam and Eve, who felt panicked, when they heard the Lord's voice in the garden after they had realized that they were naked. I'm sure Noah felt anxiety when he was working tire tirelessly on this ark for years and every single passerby mocked and ridiculed him. Moses had a speech impediment, but God still called him to lead the Israelites. Ruth, she was grieving a terrible loss and became codependent on Naomi. Joseph's brothers literally sold him into slavery. I don't even want to get started on all of Job's suffering, but Jeremiah suffered loneliness and insecurity. Jonah was so anxious that he ran from God. And we just did an entire series on David. And you can read in scripture where you can see his fragile state of mind and heart. You can see it. I think of Mary, who had the responsibility to give birth to the Son of God. I think of Martha, when she was tirelessly cleaning her, her house because she was nervous and she was anxious that Jesus was sitting right at her table. She couldn't even enjoy that because she was being excessively cleaning her house. Elijah, when Jezebel threatened his life, he ran out and asked God to take his own life. Can you imagine what Peter felt? What Peter felt when that rooster crowed, can you imagine that? What about Jesus? What about the night he went to the Garden of Gethsemane? What was going through his mind? I know sometimes it's like hard to believe that Jesus could have experienced an anxious thought, but when Jesus took the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, he took his disciples, he sat them down, he took, he took Peter, James, um, and John, AKA his rider dies. And he took them a little bit further into the garden. And he said to them, he said in the ESV translation, he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. 
In the message, it says Jesus, Jesus plunged into an agonizing sorrow. And then he said, this is crushing my life out. In NIV, it says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus himself felt this. Those nights, those nights when I was on my bedroom floor in the fetal position, feeling like I was dying, Jesus felt it. Jesus endured it. Scripture says Jesus fell on his face before the Father. So I promise you, I promise you that there's no emotion, there's no feeling that we have faced that Jesus doesn't understand. And as we close, I want to talk to you guys about peace. I want to give you guys an opportunity to lean into peace. You see, peace isn't an emotion. It's not a feeling. Peace is a person, and his name is Jesus. So I'm going to ask you, do you really want peace? And I'm going to open up the altar here in the next couple of minutes for the people that want peace, for the people who say, God, I want to stand in the center of who you say I am. To the people that say, God, my thoughts make me want to die. There's always a war going on in my head and I'm gonna be a casualty. To those of you that say, God, I'm sick of believing these lies about myself, that I'm worthless, that I'm not good enough, that there's someone else more called, more equipped. To those of you that say, God, what is the truth? If you wouldn't mind, everyone close your eyes. Actually, can you turn those lights back on? I want everyone to raise their hand if they've ever felt anxious. I want everyone to raise their hand if they've ever felt depression, addiction, anger, pride. Raise them high. The enemy wants you to believe that you're alone. That's his main goal. That's his main goal. And we usually don't do this but I want you to understand and I want you to see that Satan is lying to you. So I want everyone to keep their hands up high and open up your eyes. You're not alone. You're not alone. You can see it all across this room. So I ask again, do you want peace? If you would just go ahead and stand. You know, we can ask for peace time and time again, but if we don't get in position to receive it, we're just speaking words. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You cannot cast your anxieties and keep your pride. You have to humble yourself, not wait idly by for God to humble you. God wants you to do it. So I want to challenge you to get in position now. Whatever that looks like for you, just let it be a position of humility. If you need peace, I encourage you, if you want peace, it's not something that is just poured out on you. Like you have to lean in. You have to seek it. Scripture says that if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. So if you want peace, I want you to come up to this altar and hear my heart on this because I don't think 
that, I don't think that this is where Holy Spirit is, okay? I, he's in the back, but the step to the altar is what matters. So we're gonna go into worship. And if you need prayer, there are gonna be people on the sides for you, ready to pray with you, ready to war with you. I will pray with you. And just like this woman, I implore you, just like this woman who did not let Jesus pass her by, I implore you, do not let this moment pass you by. Allow yourself to be pulled into a response. Allow yourself to receive what God so desperately wants to give you. We hope you enjoyed this message on the My Big Church podcast. We thank everyone who has given to support this ministry. To find out more about how to support financially or more about Big Church, you may visit our website, mybigchurch.com. If you live in the Louisville, Kentucky area and don't have a church home, we would love to have you as our guest at Big Church. We are located at 7209 Faganbush Lane in Louisville, and we have worship services at 945 and 1130 every Sunday. Thank you again for listening to the My Big Church podcast.